0: On this week's episode of Bet the Process, which is very much uh core to our ethos of not actually really ever trying to make money. We have one of our biggest guests we've ever had on, Nate Silver. Yet we're not sponsored this episode. So, you know, if you want to sponsor this episode, you can very quickly DM us and we'll throw you on at the beginning or end of this. But we're gonna have Nate Silver on. We talk a little bit about the Sloan Conference, and we talk about elections and poker and sports betting and his new book on sports betting. And so with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet
1: bet the process. Bet, bet. Bet, I bet, I bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for pics, you're in the wrong place. Find a town with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking. We're looking for the edge in Massey body rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic.
0: The Welcome to another crazy. episode of the Bet the Process podcast. It is... The podcast post Super Bowl uh, hiatus. What did you do with
2: your hiatus? Rufus? Did you miss me, Jeff? Did you?
0: I mean, I mean, I didn't miss you because I saw you IRL. Which I is know, but maybe we, we not the best way to see you. We haven't recorded in two weeks. I know. It was kind of nice to not record, wasn't it? Or did you not even miss it? It was. Or did you not um, even notice?
2: I was like, where am I gonna? I was literally trying to think, where am I gonna podcast from? I need to be, make sure on Tuesday I'm in a good place for that, and then I realized. No podcast this week. So, so I I went mentally
0: or a good place physically,
2: physically, but always mentally. So then I played pebble beach instead. Oh, well, look at you. How was pebble beach? Amazing. Like I, the course was, I mean, it, it, I, I got a beautiful weather day. It was supposed to be rainy, but it ended up being a beautiful, sunny day. Like 60 degrees played decently. I hit, I I made two birdies, Jeff. I, I, Almost birdie number seven, two, and actually landed at two feet from the pin before I kind of spun back a little bit to seven feet and missed my birdie putt, unfortunately. But it was a, it was a lovely round. Like the course is, I mean, I think it's, it's my favorite course I played.
0: What was the thing that surprised you most about it? How, how long was the were round? Was it really long?
2: I think it was over five hours. It ended up being that it didn't feel like a long round though. Cause I was walking, I was with, you know, it was a threesome and I liked the people I was paired with, so we had interesting conversations. So I was paired with a a, a club pro from in uh, north. Well, he lives in North California, and and his father, who are there, they were doing a, a golf trip. They're really nice guys, but they're good golfers. We, we, I like clearly, well, well the club pro is a very good golfer. Yeah, he was like a top collegiate golfer. Got it. But he, I mean, yeah, like it's what one of those shoot, rounds that you, you know? kind of. Sorry, do you know what he shot? Well, he was playing um, – he wasn't playing the tips. I remember he he almost went two under in the first hole, first two holes, or he almost – I think he did go two under in the first two holes. He almost went three under in the first two holes. I mean, he was just hitting missiles like right at pins. I think he kind of came back down to earth a little bit. I don't know what he shot exactly.
0: It's interesting because you I've – I've never heard you talk so – nostalgically about a course before like you you're always oh i you're talk about like cabot a, i talk about cabot and how much that's I love cabot. true you talk that's In, true you talked, but that's part of the Cabot thing there. is the experience right
2: yeah but i mean like it felt a little cabot like along with the holes along the water you have kind of a similar like spectacular backdrop basically and along these cliffs i think pebble beach would be
0: insulted by you saying that i think cabot feels a little pebble beach-ish yeah cabot pebble i think beach feels a little cabot i think
2: cabot is its stock is going to rise i think people will think more of the course the courses i should say going forward than they do right now as it gets more attention i mean i think that's kind of how things work
0: do you have any uh
2: thoughts about the golf this week i mean my spreadsheet does but i don't know it's been it's been a chaotic week for me i've i was in big Sur for the weekend well actually from friday through monday which was amazing. went to um, this place called the Esalen Institute and did a workshop by the brothers Corin on reawakening my creative potential. So. Um, nice. Yeah, exactly. And then I drove back two days ago, I guess. It's a long drive. Um, so I haven't really, I haven't really gotten and looked a lot at, at what we're actually betting as much as you know, I, I ran, ran my, my numbers and stuff like that but i know there i mean there are three events this week so there's a lot going on nice how was your week jeff
0: uh just, just busy i'm heading out to sloan um next week or sorry the, the end of this week and um doing a couple panels at sloan and doing a our normal panels? fun dinner a couple panels yeah I, I think i'm i think i managed to rope myself into another one because i i was on the website and i happened to see that they only had a couple panelists so far and i asked them if they needed help with it so we'll see. I don't want to spoil it in case they decide they don't want me and I get the egg on my face that they didn't. You want You weren't like my things.
2: good friend Rufus doesn't have a Sloan ticket, and you know if he's a panelist, then he doesn't need one.
0: Well, it's not a sports betting panel. The the actual yeah. agenda looks pretty light on sports betting, which is interesting. I don't know if that was an active decision, and uh, really I, I, may, I, I may have I may have missed the sports betting panels when I looked over it quickly. But there's a lot of mainstream, more businessy type. And there's obviously a lot on AI. There's a golf panel where the no laying up guy is there, Chris Solomon. So I'm going to try to meet him maybe, um, which would be cool. And um, other than that, there's, uh, you know, normal Sloan stuff. So I'm excited for it. But my guess is it'll be, you know, it's becoming less and less of a sports betting. Like early on, it was a sports betting, you know, thing. It wasn't a
2: sports betting thing at all, but there were, there was,
0: no sports betters would come sports though.
2: Sports betting. I mean, sports betters still do come. They just don't largely go to the actual conference anymore. Right. It's still like a sports betting networking event, but it's kind of more of a. It feels like it's still more of like an OG sports bettors type meetup. I feel it's like it's a, team, a, it's like,
0: like, it's it's interesting because I was talking to Nate a little bit about it, and and you know there there are, it is interesting to track this event. And, you know, I'm working on, I don't know if I've told you, but I'm working on some, some new media stuff that's tracing a lot of the history of analytics and, and whatnot. And and, uh, and this conference itself is sort of a microcosm of like what analytics has, be, be, has evolved from, right? Where it started as this, it was in classrooms at MIT, like literally in classrooms. And if you were someone that was doing analytics in sports, you were going to be at this conference because it was the place that you were. And now because it's gone so mainstream, it's less important, I think, probably to be there from an analyst perspective because there, you know, they're, and also there's just other options, you know, to, to network, right. Even like from a sports betting perspective, and I'll give Spanky's bet bash a shout out. Obviously that's, that's become the preeminent networking event for sports betting. But so.
2: I still think they're different. Like, I think Sloan is much more of a, originators type like handicappers meet up than it is whereas Bet Bash was largely you know a lot of top like top down betters people um looking for accounts and that kind of thing
0: yeah i mean sloan is a special event i mean it, it'll obviously always hold this very special place in my heart because of the people that i see every year and and just the the origin story of it and and obviously you know we'll give a shout out to jessica and daryl and the students that do a tremendous job with it so We're gonna welcome in uh, Nate Silver, a good friend of ours, to we've never had him on before, so this is exciting. And we're gonna have him on to talk a little election predictions and sports betting. And then we'll talk to you all again next week, where hopefully we'll start this new series that I've been talking about. But Rufus is less inclined to want to start it. But I'm excited about it. So we'll talk to you guys all again next week. And hopefully you enjoy this interview with Nate Silver. We now welcome in an OG. In the analytics world, the godfather of predictions, maybe, or the the grandfather of predictions, I'm not sure. What we'd not call that you. Old, yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah. You're, you're. I think we're probably around so. the same age. Um, maybe you're younger. I think I feel like everyone's younger these days. But it's Nate Silver, everyone, and it's exciting. Um, my favorite Nate Silver moment, honestly, is when you were mentioned on Orange Is the New Black, when she said, "Nate, <laughs> I believe in science. I believe Nate Silver is a witch." etc. So that that was my do you have a favorite cultural reference that you've ever received?
3: I was in the Simpsons a couple of years ago. It was like one of the few good things to happen during like the height of the kind of lockdowns and stuff like that. That was awesome, man. That's my favorite for
0: sure. What did they say in The Simpsons?
3: Lisa Simpson was running for president and I made a handful of like snarky comments and you actually go in and like record your voice yourself. I think I I upstaged my then ABC News colleague George Stephanopoulos, I feel like, on
0: The Simpsons. So it was a lot of fun. That's amazing. So I like to say that I was the first person that ever wrote about you publicly or wrote about the election stuff that you're in publicly in my book. That, that may or may not be right, but let's just go with it. Um, yeah. When we talked back then, you mentioned the simplicity of those election models that gained you so much notoriety you know, and you compared it to what you've done in the baseball world. And, and those that don't know, maybe it'd be helpful for you to talk about your your origin story of how you got into this world and really like the baseball stuff specifically.
3: Yeah. So to wind things back a little bit, um, I graduated from college in 2000, getting old, obviously. I had a lot of fun in college. I hadn't really like thought very much about what I wanted to do with my life. But it's 2000, so you go, if you're a, you know, right, college senior, you go into like consulting or banking, right? I hadn't really studied hard enough or been dedicated enough to go to banking. So I got a job working for KPMG doing um, economic consulting. Uh, Not very exciting. Um, But on the side, I started doing lots of things. I started, number one, building a model for baseball prospectus, although I didn't know it at the time, kind of built it on spec, called PICOTA, which is a player forecasting system for Major League Baseball. And also started playing poker on the side. This was like the days of like the online poker boom where you could be even mediocrely skilled and make pretty good money because there was so much dumb money in the game, the money maker boom and so forth. And so, yeah, in 2004, I um, quit my consulting job to to uh, spend half my time playing mostly online Texas Hold'em and half my time working for Baseball Prospectus.
0: Got it. And then the, the story of the election models kind of like, seeing it and and realizing that there was a better way to do this than what they did. That observation led you to build the first level election models. How have you improved those models since?
3: I mean, in some ways, I'm, I kind of was leaving a part of the story, right? Where so, yeah, what happens is that online poker gets shut down de facto by the U.S. government in 2006, and that kind of, A, gave me a lot more time, and B, kind of sparked my interest in politics, and kind of realized that we'd had this whole money bub revolution in baseball, um, which kind of the origins are in the mid two thousands, and then things are still kind of in the stone ages in politics, and you know at a time when things are becoming more data driven, to have any kind of relatively solid quantitative approach seemed appropriate to me. Look, in some ways, the models aren't aren't that different than the model I built in in two thousand eight, right? Um, what you're trying to do, number one, is figure out number one empirically how accurate are polls really? Like our models don't assume that polls are right instead of trying to like actually quantify how wrong they are basically at different points of the election given different amounts of data number two is to try to figure out the relationship between the different states you do not have 50 independent contests for president of the united states you have highly correlated outcomes where the outcome in michigan is correlated 0.9 with the outcome in wisconsin or pennsylvania or whatnot so if you kind of figure out those two things that's the basis for, for an election model really. And like in some ways that backbone hasn't changed all that much. Now there are differences. If you're looking at elections for Congress, you have a lot more data points, so you can use things apart from polls to predict like fundraising or like the previous voting history in, um, in a state or congressional district. You know, we've added economic components. I'm not sure who's we anymore, just me, right? There's an economic component to the model. So there's a kind of week prior that when the economy is better, that is helpful for incumbents, but things haven't changed all that much. It's more a matter of kind of taking what I think is a good concept and kind of and kind of refining it. I mean, you don't have that much data, right? We have um, what is it, 16 elections since World War II, maybe 12 elections with reliable polling data. So, like, you can't do anything <laughs> all that fancy, right? It's like not some like machine learning scenario where you have millions of data points and you can and you can optimize in this way or that way. You have to impose a lot of structure and assumptions and those assumptions haven't haven't necessarily changed that much over the years.
2: That's a really interesting point you make about it being a small data problem. And I know in, in your book, The Signal and the Noise, you talked about forecasters are better when they get a lot of feedback. And I think the example was somebody predicting oil prices 20 years out isn't gonna be a very good predictor because that person is not gonna actually get the feedback. How do you, in that light, Um, is it hard to sort of make improvements and learn from the feedback you're getting when there's so few elections?
3: I think it is hard, right? I mean, um, and most people make the mistake of overcorrecting on election forecasts, right? You know, which is obviously, I think most people in general are too stubborn in life and don't adjust enough. But like, you know, what a sample of one election doesn't really tell you very much unless you have like a, 0.1 or a 99.9 that happens, obviously from a Bayesian standpoint, then you can start to, or even like a 2 or a 98 or something, right? You should probably make some assumptions and adjustments. But no, you're not really getting that much feedback. It helps if you also are forecasting um, presidential primaries, which we have some years. Those are kind of more individual one-off events. Again, with congressional elections, they're a little bit more independent. You have different candidates in every state or district But yeah, fundamentally, you know, for the rest of my life, I'll kind of like never really know what the long run is exactly. You know, even with a track record now of like 16 years, it's like, it's not really the long run. It's kind of one data point every two years, more or less, if you treat Congress and president as separate. So yeah, you have to just kind of like be, I think, even more process driven to tout the name of the show a little bit. Look, it also helps that I've made models in sports where you do get a lot more feedback that like I, I play poker, right? Um even to some extent, the world of like blogging and writing a lot where you're getting kind of constant feedback from readers, things might not be outright predictions as much, but you still, you feel like you're in the arena, so to speak. But yeah, you just have to live with the fact that like you're never really hitting the long run here.
2: You've been criticized by people. I mean, generally, I mean, pretty much exclusively if your predictions don't align with their political opinions. um, But that's another story but for for kind of putting your finger on the on, on the trigger or not on the trigger whatever what's that expression on the putting scale? your finger on the scales yeah. there you go yeah um at times but given it's small data and and i mean the process of building a model like necessarily there's an art to it and does require that um is that i don't know can you <laughs> discuss
3: no, I think it's being very, very process oriented and very focused on on certain heuristics that have been proven reliable, right? So like one very important heuristic is that it's hard to predict the direction of polling bias, right? So you will hear theories now about, oh, um, are polls underrating Biden and people can point to 2022 where there's a actually not entirely correct claim that polls underrated Democrats. It's not quite true, but like, even if you grant that, there's no real correlation from year to year in in which direction the polls are biased. They often are biased, but you don't know ahead of time. And I don't know, there is so much partisan motivated reasoning from otherwise intelligent people that it's kind of astonishing really. You know, you have certain people online where their whole shtick is like, every single development is interpreted as good news for Democrats or Republicans. Every single year they have kind of like the same error and the same bias and it's like it's kind of shocking that they don't like wake up and say is this motivated reasoning at all um and you know obviously part of it too is that they don't really have skin in the game as much i mean you do lose some face if you kind of make a forecast and it's wrong and can debate what wrong actually means and how that might be interpreted kind of by like the lay public but the strategy like always been on black every time and develop a big fan club for always putting on black and then red hits after one or two or three cycles and you look stupid you kind of go away and do something different i mean it's hard to if you if you have not much to lose and you can gain some reputational credit until you're wrong and you still come out kind of ahead it creates a weird kind of equilibrium i think whereas conversely if you are established like i'm not really sure it's in my best interest to make a forecast even if i'm right like 75% of the time, right? I'm not sure it's kind of plus EV relative to overall reputational stakes, or there's certainly more to, to to lose than to gain, I think.
0: Yeah, I think we think about that a lot in the world of sports betting where giving picks is a you know negative EV probably uh, equation for anyone, right? So if you go back to this idea of the first election, when you probably gave Trump a better chance than anyone else did, but yet obviously you didn't predict that he won. When he won, you know, you got crap for not being right. Did that experience teach you anything? I mean, I assume that that's what kind of taught mean, you. I it taught me that.
3: what I already know, which is that people yeah. are foolish. You know, I mean, to me, it's a it's an unambiguously good forecast because it was right by a pretty wide margin relative to the market. Um, you know, the market price had Trump at. 16, 17, 18%, and we were at 29%. So it's a very, a very plus if you bet on Trump.
2: I Uh, I bet on him at four to one the the night before (laughs) the election. Like I made like a hundred grand on it. It was great. I mean, it wasn't great. So
3: so to me, there's like nothing. (laughs) And also the forecast was right for kind of the right reasons where it understood the relationship between different states. It understood that there was a lot of uncertainty in the polling because there was a big undecided vote and third party vote that translates into wider air bars. It understood that Clinton was kind of underperforming in these so-called white working-class states where Obama had overperformed in 2012. So, and also I kind of like made a lot of noise. You know, I thought I took pains to emphasize, that like actually Trump is very much alive in this race. People are being premature to dismiss his chances. And that's even though, the, you know, even though I did believe the forecast, I thought that's going to be quote-unquote wrong 70%, 71% of the time. I felt like I really, Put myself out there to make that point clear and then people don't really remember and are looking for we a scapegoat i mean i think yeah part of it is quote unquote people don't understand probabilities but it's also people don't they're not really in politics for truth-seeking reasons anyway <laughs> they're in politics to have their kind of priors confirmed and to feel good about their like identity and to be tribal it's kind of really the polar opposite. If you pick any domain in the world, that's like the most removed from, I don't know what we want to call what we do, but like kind of empirical rational logical thinking, like election forecasts, especially in a presidential year are the most removed from that, I think. I mean, I think political parties almost deliberately are trying to like cater to people's emotions and biases and tap into like poor heuristics, and so, kind of, when you're new to the field, it's kind of very exciting because, like, you can kind of like you're the one-eyed man in the land of the blind. So, what do I say there? You're the one-eyed man in the land of the blind um, because people are not very rigorous at all. But then, at, at some point, you get embedded in it, and you're like, I just don't really kind of. I don't know. It's very unusual when you have a product that's popular, but like 90% of people like it for the wrong reasons. It's a little bit like you're some indie rock band that has some unlikely mainstream hit that you become known for. Everyone wants you to play that song at your concerts and you kind of, on the one hand, understand that's kind of like your meal ticket, but kind of also resent it a little bit. That's how it's felt like at times.
0: So in the next election, I remember, and this is just my recollection, so you seemed a bit less confident in your models. Was that an act or were you really, I mean, was were, were you soft pedaling to sort of position from a marketing perspective in terms of what you'd learned four years ago or were you really concerned that there were exogenous factors that weren't weren't in your models so
3: we built in an assumption again i'm using the royal we, even though i shouldn't i built in an assumption in the model that like that covid created some intrinsic uncertainty about the election because it was changing how people how people voted that it was much harder to model turnout when all of a sudden people are voting um not electronically, but by mail or in new ways. There's a lot of news between COVID and the economy in 2020. Um, so the model was on the one hand, I think, designed to be pretty cautious and, and but it still gave Biden like a 90% chance of winning, right? And that's, <laughs> that's the number that if you went on the site by election day that you would see. And so, look, I think there's a difference between like saying, okay, let's say my forecast is 90% Biden or 90%, I don't know, san francisco 49ers or whatever else i think i'm allowed some leeway in kind of how i talk about that if i emphasize the 90 or the 10 um because 10 is not zero it's not two percent 10 percent things happen it's an inside straight draw in poker it happens you know quote unquote often enough i don't think it really affects the modeling itself i mean i think like um i think that like there were good reasons to think there was a lot more intrinsic uncertainty in 2020. And in fact, the polls were actually kind of like not very good in 2020, right? The hypothesis of the model was that even if the polls are off, Biden has a wide enough lead that he'd still probably eke out a victory. That's kind of what happened is that like the polls did overestimate Biden and underestimate Trump by a pretty wide margin, but like, but still by enough for Biden to win semi comfortably in the electoral college by, you know, one point in all these different states, which adds up to enough electoral votes. So I, don't know, I feel, I think I feel pretty good about that, but like also when you are making a model publicly, then I mean, it probably changes the incentives like a little bit, you know, I think I'm like in the 99th percentile of like being dogmatic about process. <laughs> but at the same time, like if you were just talking to a private audience, I mean, might it be like a little bit different? I mean, maybe, might you have like different models or assumptions that you average instead of having one for the sake of simplicity? I I think maybe, plausibly, right? Would you kind of like examine some alternative hypotheses a little bit more? I think possibly, yeah. So to have a forecast that gets such a large amount of public consumption, it was never paid well, right? It's like tens of millions of people are reading this. Maybe that kind of makes you stick to your guns a little bit more and not wanna kind of like change things in midstream. But I don't think I, you know, I don't think I ever like deliberately, I mean, look, most people build models that are overconfident when you're in these low end, low data scenarios where you can overfit a model really easily, right? There was one model even 2020 that had like Biden with like a, in June and Biden with like a 99% chance of winning the popular vote, <laughs> um, which he did win the popular vote, right? But like, that was like, obviously just on the surface wrong, you know, overconfident and like, and so, you know, <laughs> do I think our election models kind of err on the side of underconfidence i mean maybe maybe a little bit but like i think that's like in the long run the much the much
2: lesser sin to to make so one um example of sort of a small data problem and and sort of and where you have to make a judgment on small sample size in the past has been um something we've talked about on this podcast first half scoring in the super bowl relative to second half scoring and for like two decades, there were an, an on average seven more points scored in the first half than the second or in the second half than the first half, and the second half outscored the first half in I think more than seventy five percent of Super Bowls. As someone who was betting on Super Bowl props, I was trying to figure out if that was signal or noise. We kind of have, in a way, you're faced with the similar issue right now, with, where we have two elections where Trump has beaten the, his polling projections, and there is a sort of, you You can you can find a narrative for it um, and people do. How do you go about trying to figure out if like, like how to integrate that in and, and the uncertainty around that?
3: I mean, maybe this speaks a little bit to the difference of like, if you're making a forecast in public versus if I were like, just betting on it myself or like consulting with like a financial firm or something, right? It's hard enough to kind of explain one probabilistic forecast to the public, let alone have like an alternate scenario or whatever. But no, I think if you were like, if you were actually betting tens of millions of dollars or some hedge fund on the outcome, I think you would want to examine that hypothesis in a bit more detail for for why that is exactly. And there are good excuses, right? In 2016, holsters, I think are, so basically in the pure world, you take a random sample, you you dial numbers out of the phone book, and you get a random sample and through the magic of statistical sampling, and that's represented the entire population, right? More and more people don't actually answer phone calls at all. Certainly not kind of um, unknown calls from, from strangers that are coming up as pollster numbers or whatever. The people who do answer polls tend to be college educated, tend to be politically engaged and informed. That now correlates with voting democratic, right? College educated voters vote more democratic than non-college voters do. And so if you weren't correcting for the more educated and informed nature of people who respond to polls, you wind up with response bias and therefore underestimate Trump, right? That was a basic story of 2016. In 2020, pollsters were more aware of this. However, you had a different problem, which is that because of the COVID lockdowns and pandemic, Democrats tended to stay home. A lot more, whereas Republicans like went out to Applebee's and whatnot. And so there were higher response rates among Democrats because they are like at home bored, able to take a phone call. In fact, if you look at like the polls from 2020, the polls from like March 2020 before the world has changed by COVID were very accurate. Like Biden was ahead by a couple of points and like wins all these states by like Michigan, Wisconsin by like one point which is what happened. And then after COVID hits, you start to have differential response bias and who responds to polls. So you could tell a story that that they were kind of one-off excuses, like a kind of secular change in 2016 based on the competition of the electorate. And then 2020 is a story about COVID. And then pollsters might correct for that in 2024. I mean, look, I do think pollsters have a strong incentive to get the right answer, right? One thing they figured out is that like, the purest approach to polling, where you're just kind of using these classical assumptions, doesn't really work anymore. Polls are more like models than actual kind of raw data at this point, right? And so to some extent, what the 538 model is doing is saying, I am just kind of betting the consensus, right? That this is actually a consensus forecast of people who have informed opinions and have gone out and done some polling and frankly put that polling through a lot of modeling and a lot of massaging, but have incentives to get the answer right, because if you have a bad poll, you do get less business going forward. So it's a very consensus-driven process. And, you know, Is except- it, that, I mean, because
2: like, if, if if your poll, I mean, if you wanna be on Fox News, your poll needs to confirm what their beliefs are, right? If you wanna be on MB, MSNBC, you wanna confirm that. I mean, maybe not to the same extent.
3: It's, it's fair, and it, look, look, to some extent, to some extent that can balance out. I mean, you have incentives on both sides to to give overly rosy polling. It's also kind of not clear whether the incentives actually like, do you want to have your partisans think the election's in the bag? It's like actually very unclear what effect, if any, that um that polling has on turnout and kind of how that nets out directionally, if anything. But but look, you you're kind of like trusting, I'll put it like this: you're trusting the pollsters to be smarter than. pundits right and smarter than the conventional wisdom which is kind of uniquely bad in politics for for many reasons between motivated reasoning the lack of like a large sample size you know people kind of thinking every election's like a unique snowflake and not being able to draw from a larger if still small sample so you know i mean this it's a little bit like the super bowl too rufus in the sense that like there is a lot of there's a lot of dumb money in election forecasting such that the market doesn't really clear i don't think um you have a lot of like finance people who overrate their knowledge about politics maybe even some sports betting people who do that a lot of public money versus you know a handful of firms certainly there are some hedge funds that are doing serious election forecasting right not a ton but but some there are certainly some sports betters or generally sharp people who are taking election for, election forecasting seriously but like it's a fairly high barrier to entry like building a good election model is a couple of months of work, whereas there's no barrier to having like an opinion and and wagering a lot on it and having that be motivated by like bipartisan motivated reasoning.
2: I mean, how is that different than sports betting? It's it's it takes a lot of time to build a model.
0: It's not. I mean, except- there's probably I what I, I I would say that there's a lot more people that care about elections than care about sports.
2: Right. Well, one thing that was interesting to me that someone brought up, um, someone from the other side of the pond in terms of market inefficiencies and in political forecasting is that that the incentives for people betting aren't always to win money. In fact, there's times, apparently there's like a lot of PACs that will spend money betting on political, on on their candidate to drive that price up to get them more airtime. So like in that kind of, I was like, wow, that actually makes sense that, I mean, maybe, maybe it makes sense that this market isn't quite as efficient as a market, then a market of that size that you'd expect.
3: In 2012, there was some evidence on in-trade at the time that like, that there was some attempt to manipulate, I use that term carefully. I don't know if it's ever proven definitively, right? But some effect to like, attempt to like boost the Romney price because like, uh, people thought it was relatively cheap at the time, right? People thought it was like a worthwhile expenditure to improve the narrative about Romney, right? And it's not like you're losing that whole bet all the time, right, if Romney is like, some number of basis points overpriced, like you still get lucky and win that some of the time. So like, I think that's plausible. Um, Marketing cost. Yeah, but like, but you know, the other difference too is that like, if you build a good NFL model, you can bet how many games is, you know, 17 games times 30 teams divided by two <laughs> per year, right? You have a lot more opportunities to bet every year. Whereas an election model, it's useful once basically, right? Like a congressional model, you have to build a whole separate model. So like to make one bet, every four years, I mean, that explains why I think like probably there is like a lot of percentage-wise EV, right? On one bet you get to make once every four years, but like, but it's hard to make a living from, from election forecasting. Um, So you don't have this like kind of professional class of people who do it. You might have like these super sharp quants who can build models for anything. And you might have people like me who are interested in it kind of for its own intellectual purpose, although do have a gambling background, obviously, but like but you know you don't really have uh it's a hard thing to do to 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 kind of make a viable professional career out of it
0: all right let's let's shift over to sports so so 538 has gotten criticism and specifically criticism from the twitter you know the 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 loud twitter mafia sports betting mafia um over the years for making predictions that are so far off gambling markets that they are laughable and you know we can talk specifically about Um, I think anti-warriors and then pro-Celtics. Obviously, you're aware of these criticisms. Do you have a general response to them? And then I guess, you know, now that you've written a book about sports betting, do you have any different perspective on that response?
3: Yeah, look, I mean, like the average sports better is a lot more aware of these issues than the average like political commentator, (laughs) I guess I'd say, right? I mean, look, so I actually, for the book, spent a year, uh, so 2022-2023, betting the NBA for the entire regular season, about halfway through the playoffs. So that definitely gave me a point of view. And that was like partly using the 538 model, but also, you know, trying to line shop and, you know, buying the best software and getting into that whole kind of thing, right? And uh, I'm a big NBA fan and and, you know, watching a lot of NBA and consuming a lot of NBA media. And, you know, we have our own model, Raptor. And basically kind of, I mean, I did a little bit better than break even, but like, you know, within, given the uncertainty, like probably somewhere between slight loser and modest winner, right? um But that's not taking the model off the shelf and betting with it, right? It's number one, like understanding where the shortcomings are in the model. Like the model is using data all the way back to like 19... 77 for home court advantage right so i knew that like you have to like subtract half a point or something for like modern home court advantage right also like we're this is a free model that nobody's paying for right so we do some like scraping to deal with like injury situations and a bit of like manual data entry but like if i were like betting professionally then i'm like you know going on twitter and doing searches for like you know dame lillard is he out for the <laughs> pregame shoot around that kind of thing right just a lot more kind of and informed about situations like oh you know this player is coming back from suspension and is not kind of in 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 full 100% form right now so like look the nba in particular is so dependent on the regular season especially on player availability and also to some extent on on effort which is like not an easy thing to tease out but like clearly some games teams are gunning more at 100% than others that like that kind of swamps kind of swamps whatever their alpha you might or might not have in your model, right? If you have a model that's sluggish to be updated for player injury data, then it will lose relative to the market for sure. If you have a model as one input in a betting process and you kind of are making other mathematical or mental adjustments, I think it can be plus CV or at least least competitive. But yeah, I mean, the NBA is a very difficult sport to, I think, predict. that reason unless you're kind of like really devoting a lot of time to it right like when i was kind of betting on the nba um i was writing the book doing other things right but like you know that's a couple of hours per day and that's to kind of get to a point where you're treading water or maybe like maybe a little bit better than treading water (laughs) i mean the closing line value was often quite good but like it's a it's a and then you start getting limited by sites even being like semi-sharp that's another problem as well no look it gave me more respect for for the difficulties of making a living as a, as a sports better, for sure.
0: And there are other things that that time taught you, um, and would it change? I guess what, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about the whole idea of like models in public. So I, I think this same lesson applies for the NBA stuff. And I think you, you've done a really good job talking about the challenges with explaining models or using analytical models as a basis for content. So again, applaud you for that. But again, as you think about, you know, how about this, would you, or, or if, if, if you wanted to try to create a subscription product for 538 for sports betters, is that something that you would go, go, is that a path that you would, you would, you would undertake? Yes. Uh, w- why? Yes. It, depending on what your answer is, why?
3: Yeah. Look. I, look. If you were making a subscription product, then you would devote a lot more time to the model, right? You would have you would partner with someone to have up to the minute injury info to the extent you can, right? You'd have dynamically updating home court advantage. I mean, there are like there's a list of like five or six things on a punch list of things that like kind of mental adjustments that was making the model that you'd want to make on your own to have that kind of be like a high quality product. Again, I think basketballs, the NBA is very difficult because it's so player dependent. If you just make kind of approximations about like depth charts and things like that, then that's enough to kind of cost you a lot of EV. And I was trying to make up for that by like being a generally knowledgeable basketball fan and so forth. But no, I mean, look, the threshold for having a product, a model that's like, you can take off the shelf and just bet with blindly, I think is is very high, right? the threshold for having a model that is a valuable opinion that you can incorporate in your process is lower. And I think maybe even the kind of public version of Raptor hit that threshold um, at some points of the year. I mean, one thing I discovered too, was that like, so the model made a bunch of money at the start of the year and then after the trade deadline, right? Cause these are times when player valuation is important, right, lineups are scrambled. And just kind of knowing that, hey, actually, this guy is like better than the public thinks is valuable. So, like, dregs the regular season, where it's like, how am I interpreting, you know, Steph Curry's questionable tag or Joel Embiid's probable tag, or um, what's going to happen on a back to back and what are this team's incentives to play hard and climb up in the playoff ladder or not? Like, any kind of EV from like better player valuation is swamped by those factors by the time you get into like you know, a late January day in the regular season and so forth.
0: Okay. So we, you and I talked a little bit yesterday about poker because we're doing this poker panel at the Sloan conference coming up, shout out to the Sloan conference. And one of the things we talked a little bit about was sort of like beating a solved game. And we got into the idea of the softer side of poker. You mentioned a little bit about some of the challenges that you faced when you were betting the NBA, losing outs and things like that what are what are the softer side what are the advanced, what does it mean to the softer side of poker and like wh- where are the edges that you see if everyone knows gto and everybody knows has solvers and everyone plays optimally where is the edge where's the alpha
3: so let's kind of keep this now to the realm of live poker i think online poker is becoming hard to beat because of like for many reasons but you know a combination of like market efficiency and cheating basically makes online poker very tough to beat um look i think physical live reads are actually worth a fair amount i think situational awareness is worth a fair amount i think coolness under pressure is very important one thing that's somewhat unique about poker is that you can literally be in situations kind of where the course of like a year playing tournament or cash game poker where like we're like one decision is hundreds or thousands of times more important than another decision right you know i have a couple of home games i play in new york right one home game is a one dollar two dollar game one's a fifty dollar one hundred dollar game right so literally one is um <laughs> is 25x bigger and if i play my a game in the small game and my b game in the fifty one hundred game then i'll get crushed right um and if the reverse, then i can goof off in the smaller game and win so like you know are you able to make good decisions under pressure are you, do you have a stamina, right? I mean, poker takes a lot of time. Tournaments can last for days on end, right? Do you, are you still making A-game decisions? Like those things are all, I think, quite, quite important. And like the physical reads thing too. I mean, if you go watch, there's a good show for, uh, called Game of Gold, which was produced by a um, poker site called GG Poker, where it's all heads up matches. And it actually shows that some of these people, like Maria Ho as an example, are actually very, very, very good at like, Understanding between physical signs your opponent gives off and the aura they project, there are edges to be had in terms of like picking up on physical reads and situational reads. If you go from like, if you win 55% of your coin flips in poker instead of 50%, because you have some intuition for what your opponent's thinking in a soft still kind of way, like that's a huge edge, right? That really, really compounds a lot over time. Whereas a lot of like the GTO edges are actually quite small, right? It's like, oh, well, this play is worth, you made a terrible mistake, you raise here, you're supposed to just call and then raise the river, right? And it's like, oh, so this is worth 7.9 big blinds instead of 8.1 big blinds, right? Which is fairly small on the scheme of things. And so, yeah, look, I think people kind of underrate the soft skills, number one, and also that like people do not play perfectly, right? For the most part in poker, you make your money from exploiting mediocre to bad players and you're trying to like trend water against the other gto expert expert level players right and so like if you have a strategy for saying hey look it's the first day of the world series of poker main event this guy hasn't played a hand in two hours and now he raises three and a half x times the big blind opening his hand right like he probably has aces or kings or ace king like you know you don't need to like consult a seller for that you need to like use some kind of common sense situational awareness and, and, and I don't know, I don't think the, I don't think the GTO stuff is overrated quote unquote, but like, I do think that like, that's like kind of not where like the larger edges come from. It's more kind of like the, the table stakes of the game, right? I was just in France kind of on vacation slash poker trip and like kind of realized there that like, look, I actually have some work to do and kind of like looking at some solvers and simulations where you know, because I'm kind of like a mathematical guy, guy. I always thought, oh, that's like my edge, right? And I'm like, oh man, I'm actually kind of like becoming like a soft skills guy a little bit more and I have to like kind of improve the detailed understanding of GTO. But I don't think it's necessarily the most important thing in in live poker against a mix of opponent skill levels, right? Online versus other GTO like wizards, then yes, right? That's 80, 90% of it, right? Um, but in a major kind of live poker tournament with lots of flawed players, I'm like, then like the GTO is part of the getting in price. Right. But like, not the most important thing I don't, I don't think.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that we talked a little bit about was like longevity, which I thought was interesting longevity in a game meaning Like, I wonder, have you ever made decisions in a game that you needed to be suboptimal because you knew they could potentially create more longevity for you to be in that game and and the you know like this is like in Rufus's world this is manipulating a market for closing line value in yeah. the blackjack world this is like betting a lot of money off the top of a shoe to make it look like you're not always just betting it a lot at the end of a shoe you're making slightly negative EV bets because you know that they're probably good in the long run
3: so in the in the poker world for high stakes cash poker it's increasingly moving, to private games, right? Like you cannot, maybe during the World Series of Poker, you can do this, right? But you cannot like go to like Las Vegas and just sit down like a twenty-five, fifty, or higher no limit game without any pre-reserved seat basically, right? Um, so therefore it's a matter of like getting invites to plus EV games when people, and how do you do that? Well, either people think you're a negative player or they think you're kind of fun to hang out with, or they think you kind of create like a marketing opportunity or draw other people to the game. So you have to be aware of that for sure. Right. Like why are you being kind of offered this spot or maybe you're not plus CV. That's nothing to be honest with yourself about. Right. But like, but yeah, like you don't want to be like the kind of turd in the punch bowl at a high stakes cash game. Right. I've played on um, TV a couple of times. Right. And you want to get invites back to those things. Cause those generally are like plus CV games. I'll put together pretty soft lineups usually. So yeah, you're playing like, playing a few more hands you're having fun if people are drinking then you're drinking too right um if people are talking then you're talking too it's kind of common sense but no so i mean that's one thing that's actually kind of a little bit sad about poker is like it was a game where you could kind of like be more of a lone wolf and just kind of go in and do your own thing which is still true for tournament tournament poker i suppose right but like for cash poker now you actually have to have like the social and networking skills and take advantage of those kind of privileges right and access and so it's It's kind of disappointing and sad in a way, even though I probably benefit from it on average as someone who does know a few people, right? The equilibrium for the poker world is not great when these like big cash games, which are in some ways the classic form of Texas Hold'em more than tournaments um, are going private and, and you can't just walk into the Aria or Bellagio and play big high stakes poker, right? I think you should be able to do that. And I think kind of the industry would be better off if it like had a reset away from private back to public big cash games.
2: I mean, there's Um, a parallel there with sports betting in terms of not being a lone wolf anymore. And and in order to be able to get down enough, you have to have these networks of people and and that's a huge part of the game too.
3: It's, it's very parallel, right? I mean, look, again, we're talking about like, if you want to make like a quote unquote, good living doing these things, right? If you want to make, I don't know, a hundred K in EV doing sports betting, then even that might not be trivial given it's hard to have an edge to the first in the first place. And as I found, like if you're even like kind of moderately even trying to be a sharp bear, you get limited by some of these American retail sites quite quickly. Yeah, if you want to go sit down in like the 2-5 Bellagio game for 45 hours a week, right? You can make a 80K expected value living from that, right? But like, but to make a really good living, you have to have some social skills or if you don't have social skills, at least like have teammates or whatever that like, can do the things that you're that you're not so good at
0: all right well we're gonna have you back on you you've written a book It's called on the edge right Uh, on the
3: edge it's available for pre-orders now and it will be published on august 13th and i'll be back on hopefully jeff and rufus to promote that more but go buy the book the pre-sales are helpful in helping you to hit bestseller lists in the first week hopefully in august and like anyway i think people who like this show would really like the book
0: yeah, we'll we'll have you back on in August after we've both read it and we can talk to you specifically okay. about it. Um, but yeah, do go buy the pre-sales if you can. Uh, we'll put a, a link to the Amazon thing in our show notes so people have that and Rufus and I'll tweet it out so people have that but Thanks for, for joining us, Nate. And, you know, again, we'll talk to you this summer. Um, And I'll see you this weekend.
3: Cool, man. See you guys soon. check out the
1: numbers in the simulated system that break down the data, analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppet teaser, but the engine's running off a unleaded. None of it's organic, It all sounds synthetic. That's why I fuck with Jeff Ma and his dog, Rufus. The locks of the year, they just tell you what their truth is. Maybe make your pockets fatter as the bookies get thinner. Give the info. Donation turning losing betters into winners. Yeah. Sternheim. Huh? Reppin' Ruckers. Jeff Mott. Rufus Peabody. Crunchin' all the numbers. Massey Peabody rankings. We're, 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 we're lookin' for the edge. Analytically driven. Crunchin' all the numbers.